Well, good day, everyone. Hello, you, you came back. It's, it's good you're back again. Great to see you again, week two of two. Um, being with you, I drove down from Warwick this morning. I left Warwick. It's 500 metres above sea level. Lovely and cool, dressed appropriately, and got out of the air conditioning uh, cruiser downstairs and hit a wall of humidity. Uh, uh, what a welcome. Uh, but it's been great to be with you last week and today. Um, yeah, I've really enjoyed being here. I came in last Sunday and after five minutes of the first couple of songs, I thought, wow, this place is alive. God's spirit is at work here. Uh, and um, uh, only congregations that have God's spirit at work in them sing the way you sang last week and again today. So um, thanks for ministering to me and encouraging me in my short time with you. What's a wedding without a bride. <laughs> it's meant to be a rhetorical question. Right? <laughs> I'm stuck. What's a wedding without a bride? Can you have, is there such a thing? We all know, uh, even in our culture, in our time, everyone knows that when you go to a wedding, we all just know, boys and girls included, we all know the exact moment when the bride is meant to turn up, don't we? The whole congregation knows. Strangers too. Everyone there, we just know. The rehearsal has obviously gone well a few days earlier. The reception later, we think it must be all sorted. We've been invited. The bar tab and the wine, we assume, is all paid up for by the family. The minister's up there at the front of the stage looking all awkward and sweaty already. It's almost... Noon, the hottest part of the day. Mothers and sisters and brothers all seem to have pride of place up front somewhere. The best man, there he is, is up on stage. Uh, he's, he's joking about forgetting the rings as though he's the first best man to ever make that joke. And there's groomsmen, useless <laughs> but handsome, standing there with nothing to do, just mucking around, and I was thinking about, what is the point of groomsmen? Well, I reckon the main point of groomsmen is to be a physical embodiment to show the congregation that their main man might just have some capacity for decent relationships. <laughs> He's got some friends, so there's some hope for him. And then, of course, there's the groom. And he's looking glorious. This is, in many ways his day. He's there clear in place, front and centre of your attention and usually he's grinning from ear to ear or he should be. And then we know, don't we? This is the moment for the bride to arrive. Here is her moment to shine. I read a story this week about a woman invited to a wedding by her extended family. She didn't know the groom or his family. Her mum had told her that all the other young women would also be wearing white. And her father, for some reason, strangely insisted on holding her arm as they entered the church. When she arrived and walked in, it seemed to already be full. Halfway down the aisle, this woman finally realised that she herself was the bride. Strange things happen when there's a wedding in the offing, don't they? 
What would be a wedding without a bride? Today, I've taken you to chapter 4 of John's Gospel, where Jesus goes through the non-Jewish region of Samaria. And John, the storyteller, I want you to see, John wants you to be wondering about a bride. I'll say that again. John, the storyteller, he's got this account of Jesus in his gospel, his biography. He wants you to be wondering, where's the bride? Now stay with me on this. I want to show you, he's got, John's laid out, he's got all the bits and pieces, the accoutrements for a marriage scene in place. In chapter 1, you can check it out later at home, he, John shows you how the groom has found some groomsmen. He's got some mates, some friends like Philip and Andrew and Peter, and they show us that Jesus seems to have exceptional capacity for good, healthy relationships. Then in John 2, what's Jesus' first big sign where is it it's at a wedding the wedding at cana where it turned out that the bar tab hadn't the bar tab hadn't actually been paid up properly the wine hadn't been sorted correctly but jesus saved the day anyway you know that great story it was jesus first public sign we met jesus mother's mother there and there's sisters and brothers and family with pride of place and in the little bit between nicodemus coming to Jesus at night that you heard about last week and our episode today in the heat of the day in Samaria this week in between these two episodes is a little story a little introduction to the best man maybe you've not noticed this before he's rejoicing his joy is now complete he says He's grinning from ear to ear, the best man, because his man, the bridegroom, has finally arrived to stand at the top of the aisle. If you doubt me, have a look at John chapter 3, verse 27. I think you guys are doing the ESV. I'm all NIV, a New International Version. I'm sorry, my translation's dodgy. But stay with me. John 3, verse 27, here's the best man, John the Baptist. He says this, A person can only receive what's given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said I'm not the Christ, but I'm sent ahead of him. Look at verse 29. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and his joy is and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy, says John the Baptist, is mine. It's now complete. The groom is here. He must become greater and I must become less. John the Baptist, in the scene just before our scene today, says that he's the best man. And he says that Jesus is the bridegroom. And this is the moment, if you've been paying attention in John's Gospel after the first three chapters, for a bride to arrive. What's a wedding without a bride? Today we don't just get a woman who's uh, been a bride or going to be a bride, but a woman who's been a bride five times over. And we're going to hear how a lifetime of immorality and shame can, in Jesus, be transformed into something much sweeter and richer than even the finest of wines. So in John 4, 
If you've got your Bible there, please keep it open. Follow along with me. Bear with the translation that I've got. Look at verse 4. John 4, verse 4 to 9. Jesus is now a long way from the big smoke where he was last week. He's on the move through Samaria, right? Now, Samaritans were detested by the Jews. Jewish teachers considered them bitzes, right? They were, they were bits of sort of old Jewish uh, heritage, but they'd intermarried with Gentiles. Right? Who are the Gentiles? People ethnically like us, outsiders, foreigners to Israel, people who were not part of those ancient promises of God made all the way back to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. I understand, did you guys, I think you did a series in Genesis recently? Yeah? I did too, a few years ago, and I called the series Genesis, God's Dysfunctional Family. This scene reminds me of that family with the mention of Jacob. Do you notice, John, why does John tell you it's where Jacob's well was? Here's Jesus, tired, He's alone, he's thirsty, as he sits down by Jacob's well. Now, if you've done Genesis recently, you will have some good sense of how important the Old Testament story is to yours. And so you might remember that somehow, something special seems to always happen at a well in Genesis. You pick up the pattern... What happens when a single Jewish bloke needs some water from a well in Genesis? You remember, don't you? Abraham's servant earlier asking a woman for a well uh, for water at a well to find a bride for Isaac in Genesis 24. And Jacob at this very place where Jesus much later is in 29, Genesis 29, what does Jacob find? You heard in the reading. Rachel, his bride. Well, she eventually becomes his bride. Took, took a little while. But it's like it's a betrothal scene, isn't it? An introduction for a marriage that's going to happen. Wells in the Bible are the place for single Jewish men to find a bride. And what happens? A woman comes to draw water and the greek word for woman in this passage is guner from which we get the term gynecology this is a highly feminine word and john keeps repeating it throughout this episode right woman 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 what did he do last week with nicodemus coming at night a man a man a man just like last week we learned that Jesus knows the secrets that are in a man. Today we see that Jesus knows the secrets that are in a woman. Now we don't know much about this woman. She, she also, like Jesus, comes to the well alone. Now that was unusual for a woman in that culture to be out by herself without other women with her they would usually go to get water in the morning, early when it's cool. Not at noon. That would be like going out to the dam at, uh, in Warwick in the middle of the day in January. It's so hot. 
And so a Samaritan woman, alone, heat of the day, noonday, and did you catch in the Genesis reading, it was noon when Jacob met his wife. She has no friends, no bridesmaids. What's going on here? Well, Jesus surprises her. He cuts through the dust. He asks her for a drink. In that culture, a single bloke asking for a single woman for a drink while all alone was more than just a little provocative. I hope, hope you're starting to see that. This, I would even say this is a little risque for Jesus to be doing this. Jesus doesn't seem to mind taking appropriate risks with people. It doesn't matter how hot it is, Jesus' awkward question raises the temperature of this conversation straight away. I'm feeling hot now. You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman, she says. How can you ask me for a drink? She avoids the obvious romantic tension and instead she names the obvious racial tension. It's her way of saying very indirectly, look, don't you think this is a little inappropriate? What do you think Jesus is getting himself into? Or what is she? Well, look at, with me at verses 10 to 15, if you've got your Bible there. Otherwise, have a listen. In verses 10 to 15, Jesus offers spiritual water. At first, it again looks like, remember last week we discovered Jesus is not a great conversationalist by the look of it. Right? He says strange things. Look at what he does here. Um, he says in verse 10, he changes the topic about who should be shouting who for a drink. He's not into small talk. And in verse 10 he says, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now, I don't think she's very impressed at this. Jesus has no jar to get water. Living water means running water, quite literally. And everyone knows that the water in a well isn't running, it's still. And who does he think he is anyway? Someone greater than Jacob or something. Notice how Jesus answers her question by upping the ante. She thinks it's already inappropriate. He makes it even more awkward. This living water he's talking about is a gift of God. Right? Remember last week we learnt it's something to be received from heaven. But wait, look who gives it. He says, everyone who drinks this water, verse 13, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water that will well up to eternal life. See, for a bloke who's thirsty and tired until a minute ago, alone, exposed to the midday sun, it's hard to fathom his claim here to be divine. Let alone take in his offer of this thirst-quenching life. I mean, at this point, I imagine Jesus hardly looks like the bloke. You know that bloke out of the old solo ads? Gets out of the kayak, sweating like a pig. Or maybe like Mike at the gym in one of his Instagram posts. <laughs> you imagine Mike getting off the, what, 
the machine, a machine. And he's, he's got the solo there, the thirst quencher, right? She responds sarcastically. It's like this woman has learnt how to speak directly with men somewhere. Notice her demeanour. She says, well, give me this water then, if it means I don't have to do this walk every day, every lunchtime, in the heat. On verses 16 to 26, Jesus teaches about true worship. This woman is able to think very quickly on her feet when it comes to dealing with men. She seems to have street smarts. So Jesus turns the tables yet again. Go, call your husband, come back. I have no husband, she replies. And we don't realise at this point, as readers, that she's telling only a half-truth. Have you noticed when it comes to telling truth and lies, uh, it was a great prayer earlier, wasn't it, about uh, confessing our dishonesty. Have you noticed that the most effective lies are 90% true? We've got to be careful with deception, haven't we? But, this, but Jesus knows. Jesus realises what she's doing. Jesus, we learned last week, knows what's in a man and it turns out he knows what's in a woman too. In fact, somehow he knows her far better than she knows. You're right when you say you've got no husband, he says. In verse 18, the fact is you've had five husbands and the bloke you're now with is not your husband. What you've said is quite true. Who is this man she is now dealing with? Are we starting to see who this woman really is? John's unveiling her for us to see what her true character is like. This woman is the ultimate outsider at that time. He already told us she was a Samaritan from a people that you didn't associate with if you were Jewish. Secondly, we're told she's from a country town, not the big city, like sort of like comparing Warwick to the Gold Coast in all its glory. Thirdly, she's unmarried and so available as a woman, someone you shouldn't talk to if you're a Jewish man. But fourthly, she is also someone who everyone knows has been with at least six men. Everyone in the town would have known. So we have a promiscuous Samaritan woman whom no one from her local village would even associate with in public. And so now we understand, we're starting to understand why she's here at noon, aren't we? This isn't some lunchtime walk she does every day to get out of the office and get some sun or some solitude away from other people or to relax. This is her ritualistic, lonely, daily walk of shame. She's more than guilty. She's terribly ashamed. And she carries a far heavier burden than the water jar that's still there, tremulously in her hand. And in the light of Jesus' extraordinary inside knowledge of her darkest secrets, as well as her not-so-private public life, 
she must feel right now incredibly exposed, don't you think? No matter how hot that sun was at noonday, I reckon just the gentlest look of Jesus at this point would have burned so much hotter. I imagine it's been an awfully long time since this woman last blushed, don't you? But it starts to dawn on her, who is this man that I'm dealing with? I thought I knew about men. Who am I tangling with in this man? Little does she know yet that here is the one man who would never undress a woman before, uh, before his mind's eye but who knows exactly how many men she has undressed before. Now we're up to number six men in her life. Number seven in Jewish thinking was very important. The seventh day was important. Seven is important to John the storyteller with the seven great signs in his gospel. Seven was the Jewish number for peace and rest and completeness, wasn't it? You know this from going through Genesis. Seven is the number for wholeness and healing. John uses it a lot in telling his whole story of Jesus. And so do you see not only how many men this woman has had, who's the seventh man now in her life? Coming into her life now, Jesus is the man that she has been waiting for, but not the man she expected. Jesus is the man she was waiting for, but not the man she expected. For some of you, Jesus is the man you have been waiting for, but you haven't realised he's not the man you were expecting. She doesn't know what to do. So she does, you know, when we don't know what to do, we do what we know. You know she just reverts to type. She changes the subject again. Look in verse 20, she deploys countermeasures, distracting him again. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place we've got to worship is in Jerusalem. Is Jesus distracted? He's not deterred. He refuses to be distracted even when we distract ourselves. He keeps tracking with her in verse 20, woman, uh, 21. Woman, believe me, a time is coming when you'll worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you don't know. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. The word here for salvation is the word for wholeness, healing, completion, being mended, Jesus is talking about true worship, complete worship of the whole of your soul and mind and body. And he mentions worship to this woman seven times. He says in verse 23, A time is coming, has now come, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they're the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in spirit and truth. Jesus is talking to this woman, offering her wholeness, completion, 
being a full-bodied human in worshipful relationship with her God. You see, wholeness, your wholeness and your worship, wholeness and worship go together. What or who you worship in your life will largely determine how whole you are. What or who you worship in your life will largely determine your wholeness. Now remember Jesus clearing the temple back in chapter 2 where he taught that all true worship will no longer be about a building but about his body. Remember, it's about him. Well, here today Jesus says worship will no longer be about your relationship to a place. doesn't matter if you're from Warwick or the Gold Coast, Jerusalem or Samaria, but your relationship with a person, with him. Now at this point, we've got to remember this word for woman, gune, can also be translated as wife. Woman or wife. John's playing with the ambiguity, right? This is the language of fertility and reproduction. It's actually an agricultural, uh, has an agricultural sense of bearing fruit. And what we're seeing here is John painting you a picture of a highly provocative marriage betrothal scene where Jesus reveals not only himself but a stunning and surprising ideal disciple. Finally, in verse 25, she throws out her last distraction. She says, I know that Christ is coming. When he comes, he'll make it all make sense. And Jesus says, I, the one speaking to you, I'm the man. I am he. Literally, he says, I am. The same words that God used to reveal himself way back to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and Moses to the Jewish people. See how Jesus is honouring this lonely, shameful, Samaritan woman who not only has her own dysfunctional family, she probably has six of them. Jesus, in John's Gospel, first declares that he is the Christ to a promiscuous, this promiscuous Samaritan woman. Before this, it's only been others talking about Jesus, people like Philip and Andrew that have pointed to him and said he's the Messiah. But here Jesus actually says it himself. Jesus knows this woman better than any other man. And that's a big call. Yet he lets her know him more than anyone else in the Gospel of John so far. How privileged are we as readers over everyone else in John's story at this point? You realise we're listening into this very private conversation. One man, one woman, talking about the most intimate things and here we are 2,000 years later listening in. We're able to hear one of the most stunning, private, intense lunchtime conversations in all of history. Verses 27 to 38, Jesus offers spiritual food. At this point, the clueless groomsmen, they rock up. The disciples return from town, verse 27. 
They show no interest in the woman. Did you notice? They only share her surprise at Jesus actually talking with her. And so the men swap places with the woman because as soon as they return and look at her, she drops, she lets go, she places down her water jar and heads into town where they were. Interesting detail from John. She puts down her water jar and leaves. Now presumably all the blokes found in town was the food they went looking for because in verse 31 they try distracting Jesus from the awkwardness of the situation. It's kind of like they they sense Jesus, do you not realise how inappropriate this is? And they want to force feed him something to eat to change the topic. We all do this, don't we? We, When something is awkward, we change the topic. But in verse 32... Jesus rebuffs him. He says, listen, fellas, I have food you guys have got no idea about. And like the woman first took Jesus literally about the water, now they take him literally about the food. They're thinking, what, did Uber Eats turn up while we were gone? DoorDash arrived. Nathaniel, did you call someone while you're under that fig tree, mate? What's happening here? How does Jesus have food? Notice how he answers. The language he uses in verse 34. My food is to do the will of him who sent me, and to finish the job. Don't you have a saying, it's still four months until harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Here's this language, this agricultural language. Verse 36, even now the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop, literally fruit, for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Remember, these male disciples went to town and brought no one back to Jesus. So far, theirs has been a fruitless harvest, hasn't it? What's the woman doing? What is the woman doing? She's gone back to her village. Verse 29, she tells anyone who'll listen, come and see a man who knows all of my secrets. Could he be the Christ? And just like Philip had told Nathaniel in chapter 1, he says, come and see. Now this disciple, this woman, tells her hometown, come and see. Verse 30, they come and see. They're making their way towards Jesus. You're seeing how this woman shows how to become a true disciple of Jesus? Do you want to learn to love this year at Salt Church, Rabina, like Jesus? Do you want to learn to be loved by him? Look at this woman. What does she do? Verse 28, the first thing she does is leave her water jar. If anyone is to follow Jesus... You must be prepared to leave everything that you formerly sought life in. If you want to follow Jesus this year, you've got to be prepared to uh, to leave everything that you formerly sought life in. It's the first thing she does. Secondly, she testifies with her new life. Come and see this bloke, this man, the Messiah. And third, she reaps a massive harvest. She's incredibly fruitful. 
No matter how many children she's had with six different men, she's found living water in the seventh man in her life and now she's eating the food of her new father, her father in heaven, which is to live her life according to his will, no longer the will of her husband's. I wonder today what's in your water jar. What's in your water jar? What are the things that you habitually go to in your life that you need to start leaving behind to enjoy the living water of Jesus? What things have you got to leave behind this year? As I reflect on the question, I think I'll share with you two things in my water jar. First, I have a constant desire for affirmation, but only from important people in my life. I think I'm a number eight on the Enneagram thing, uh, the personality thing. I think you've got a pastor who's also an eight. I think Mike's an eight. I'm a bit like Mike in some respects. For me, I've got this desire for affirmation, but only from people I care about. I need to put that down and leave it to follow Jesus. Second, I have a host of otherwise addictive, apparently insatiable desires. I've got to put them down. I've got to leave them. You see, in being a follower of Jesus, I'm no longer just a volatile, hot-headed personality like an eight. I am learning to live a stable and loving life. What about you this morning? What's in your water jar? What is Jesus calling you to leave behind? Look at the healthy, wholesome, unashamed, beautiful, fertile, reproductive, feminine, woman-led harvest of real fruit in God's fields in John's Gospel. Look at this woman go. In verse 39, many, heaps of the Samaritans believed in Jesus because of her testimony. He knows all my secrets. And when the Samaritans come to Jesus in verse 40, they urge him, please stay with us for a few days. And he does. And because of his words, heaps more become believers. You notice in John's Gospel how unlike the blokes, this woman graduates to becoming a disciple maker immediately. The blokes went to town but came back with no harvest. The male disciples have made no disciples. But she, the woman, this model disciple, has now become the model disciple maker. She's the best woman. This is another pattern John the storyteller shows you in his gospel. The blokes, the Jewish men who are supposed to get it, they usually don't. And the women who in that culture are assumed to be unable to get it, they get it. Compare this woman this week with old mate Nicodemus last week. The story of Nicodemus took place in Jerusalem. This woman's story takes place in Samaria. His context, the city. Hers is the bush. His story happens at night. Her story happens at noon. That story of a man, this story of a woman. That man is a Jew, an insider. This person is a woman, a Samaritan, an outsider. He was socially respectable. She was... Well, not so much. 
Nicodemus started his conversation with Jesus, but here Jesus starts the conversation, he comes to her. Nicodemus descends into misunderstanding, but look what happens to this woman. Finally, Nicodemus fails to see that Jesus is the saviour of the world, but what does this woman tell everyone? What do people say in the woman's hometown in verse 42? Now even we know this man really is the saviour of the world. To finish, let me give you a spoiler alert. This outcast, promiscuous Samaritan woman becomes the most faithful and fruitful follower of Jesus in the whole of John's Gospel. She becomes the ideal disciple She is the best woman. She is becoming in Jesus a beautiful, redeemed person, a faithful, bride-like character, a symbol of all who will ultimately become God's people, later to become the bride of the Lord Jesus, the Messiah, the only one in your life who can tell you more than you even know about yourself and tell you more about everything you've ever done. The one who would go on in John's gospel to die your death, to put to death our proclivities for addictive sins like this woman's, to destroy our compulsive immorality and to deal with our habitual tendencies to worship men and lust after women and shame those people who don't hide their sins on Sundays as well as I do. Do you see, sisters... Don't you see, brothers, what this woman's story tells you about God's intention for your life? No matter how much dirty laundry you think you have hidden away in your your past. This woman's Messiah, as the Samaritans loudly declare with joy, I presume in verse 42, he's the saviour of the world. He's your saviour. His gospel is for all of us, do you see? He's the saviour of, especially, Morally compromised people like me. Socially outcast. Structurally oppressed. Sexually immoral. Geographically isolated. Culturally excluded. Lonely. Desperate. Used. Abused. And apparently even unwanted people. In some ways, some more than others, people just like every person here in the room today. This episode is not only about who we have been, it's about who Jesus wants to make us to be. As we learn to be loved by him, and as we learn this year, let me encourage you to learn to love like him. Because you too, at Salt Presbyterian Church at Robina, you are becoming a stunning collection of surprising disciples and disciple-makers. So let's pray about that by singing together our final song.